The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Inspira podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. Welcome to the Inspira podcast, hosted by your girl, me, Erica Mueller-Chen. I'm an international development specialist with over a decade of experience leveraging the amazing power of sport to promote peace and positive social impact. My career has allowed me to live in Europe, Southern Africa, and Latin America. In 2022, I accepted an offer for my dream job in sports diplomacy. And I also became an employee family member to a U.S. diplomat, a.k.a. an EFM. This podcast is all about inspiration and career advice. Each episode, I'll interview an inspirational global changemaker working in sport for development, social impact, or the diplomatic service. This series is perfect if you have interest in breaking into one of these sectors or you've already landed that dream role and are keen to learn from thought leaders. Enjoy today's episode and stay inspired. There was a real underrepresentation of a sport for development, indigenous informed scholarship, theoretically, empirically. We felt that this was really concerning because when we think about who are the target audience for sport for development projects it's often indigenous populations welcome friends today's special guest is dr rochelle stewart withers rochelle is an associate professor and the head of program for the institute of development studies at massey university Rochelle's research focuses on the way sport is used in developing countries and with indigenous populations to achieve social and economic goals and bring about social justice. She is also deputy chair of the board of the New Zealand Mental Health Foundation. Prior to academia, Rochelle was a registered nurse for 16 years. She also has tribal links to the Tia Tiawa, which she will teach us about today, and she's mom to five young people. Welcome, Rochelle. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you and where are you calling us from? Yeah, kia ora tato. Thanks, Erica. Well, I'm connecting in today from Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, and so most people would have heard of New Zealand, but many people wouldn't have heard of us referring it to as Aotearoa, and so that's the... Um, I suppose, indigenous name that we use for New Zealand. So the Te Reo name, Aotearoa. And so you made mention um, of my tribal links. Yep, so I, Whakapapa, which is I, uh, my genealogy goes back to um, Te Atiawa, um, which is a tribe in Taranaki, which is on the uh, west coast of the North Island. And... Um, and so Te Atiawa is my tribe and then Ngāti Rahiri is the um, sub-tribe that I belong to from an area um, called uh, Waitara. And, um, and so if we were looking to try and locate ourselves as Indigenous people, we would 
make a connection to our mountain, to our lake. We often talk about the canoe that our ancestors might have come from and then we kind of connect back down into the whenua or into the land in terms of our, our, our tribe and then our sub-tribes. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of my connection. And then I also have connections in terms of um, English and Scottish heritage as well. Wonderful. Thank you, Rochelle. And I'm so thrilled to learn more about your culture and how that intersects with your research and your work. And before we dig into that, I want to mention a reason why you inspire me because I've called this podcast the Inspira podcast. It's not only about career advice, but I try to weave in some inspiration. And from knowing you and your background, I really admire and feel inspired by the fact that you're dedicated to showcasing and highlighting and championing indigenous voices in the sport for development and peace sector in and out of research. And it's such important work that you and other scholars have been doing for some time. And I'm really excited to learn from you and to learn what that looks like and feels like today. So thank you again. Yeah, kia ora. Thanks, Erica. Great. Well, maybe to start, I can ask you for a little bit of a background about your career journey and perhaps when you started to move into that research and academia side of things, because I know you're a registered nurse for 16 years, and then you made that choice to pivot and go into the university setting and really dig into this intersection of Indigenous voices and scholarship within Sport for Development and Peace. So I'd love to know more how how that looked for you yeah and so I suppose if I talk a little bit about yeah my nursing background so um I was fortunate enough to do my you know do my nursing education um back in a time where um Sir um or Professor Sir Mason Jury and so um he writes he's a uh Māori psychiatrist and he used to write quite a lot about around, you know, indigenous models of health and those sorts of things. And um, so I was kind of fortunate to be in that space when he was just moving through and moving out of kind of the clinical environment. And he was um, part of a group that was setting up the School of Māori Knowledge here at Massey University. And um, I, I had become quite interested in, I suppose, voices from the margin um, or kind of those voices that didn't necessarily get to have a say and you see a lot of that in the mental health space so I so I was a mental health nurse for for quite a long time and then I'd spent quite a bit of time being based in London and I was backpacking so for about five years I was kind of backpacking through developing countries and I was you know starting to become really interested in you know who had things and who didn't and trying to understand why some people had things and why some people didn't didn't have things. Those countries, you know, we have tribal groups and, and minority groups and 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 I suppose I just became quite interested in some of trying to understand why some of those things were happening for particular groups. And I suppose in the New Zealand setting, I'd always been really interested in the Indigenous movement in terms of, you know, language revitalisation, um, the kind of land protests, those sorts of things, and um, but not necessarily really understanding 
that information very well. So I suppose that was part of my reason in terms of moving to development studies um, was that I was really interested in, you know, inequality, um, thinking through equity outcomes, um, social justice issues. And I was particularly interested in that stuff um, in the Pacific region. That saw me um, move into the development space. Um, and initially I did have aspirations to continue working in the health health area. So I kind of had visions that I potentially would do humanitarian or aid work. I might work for Red Cross or, or those sorts of things. And I discovered actually that I was quite, I was a bit more academic than what I thought I was. And I was able to go on and, and I ended up doing a PhD. And um, even though my PhD has got nothing to do with sport for development, what I was uh, looking at was this concept of female-headed households in Samoa, but I was using cultural frameworks to understand that. So I've, I suppose, always had a real interest in other worldviews, um, you know, cultural concepts or cultural frameworks, and just, I suppose, thinking about things that are a little bit different and, and believing that, you know, other people's knowledge systems are just as valuable and just as important. To be honest, actually, I, post-PhD, I didn't necessarily have a research platform. So I saw myself as a, a post-colonial feminist type researcher, really interested in the Pacific region, really interested in um, groups that sat at the margin, but not necessarily um, doing anything that was sport for development. And it was a little by accident that I fell into that space. So I'd always done gender work and I started to think about the way in which, um, I suppose it was rugby league initially, was being used in this region in terms of livelihoods and um, addressing things like gender-based violence. And I ended up um, successfully getting a grant from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and that was really the start of it. I come to this space not as someone who has been an athlete or someone who has a sports science background or a sports management background or even a sports sociologist um, is that I come to this um, where development for me is always centered. And so I sometimes would joke to people and say, well, I don't really care whether it's dancing for development or knitting for development. What I'm actually interested in is the, the social outcome. I just, happen to think about this through the medium I suppose of sport that's really my entry point into it I, I very much came from a development perspective and very early on I realized that many people that were in this space were coming from sports sociology or sport management or um, they had been athletes or something something like that and so I felt like that potentially was a bit of a point of difference that I was bringing bringing to the environment um, development first. 
Yeah, that's really helpful that that you shared that trajectory and your development perspective. I remember from one of our earlier conversations, Rochelle, you mentioned how your background did allow you to view things a little bit differently as you were learning about the existing research in sport for development you saw that people were talking about this need for monitoring and evaluation people were talking about power relationships people were talking about program design and you mentioned to me there was this kind of switch for you where some of those things maybe didn't feel as new or innovative or urgent and perhaps you had some ideas or some thoughts from your development perspective about research that didn't yet exist that maybe you could introduce Uh, could you speak to a little bit more to that yeah and i think in my early kind of stages in terms of being in the in the space what as I watch it, watched it kind of grow and really, I suppose, proliferate in terms of who was doing what and who was saying what, there were so many things that I suppose I just missed because they were already taken for granted um, critiques or or thoughts for me. And so it, it never occurred to me that this potentially could be something to write about or something to research mm. about because we'd just okay. been talking about it for so long in the development space. What I realized was that in this space, this stuff hadn't been discussed. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, sector-wise. Yeah, yeah, sector-wise and mm. those sorts of things and it hadn't been discussed. And part of that was, you know, because I didn't know the sport sociology or the sport sport management or the, um, you know, those those kind of bodies of knowledge intimately but what I knew intimately was the development development knowledge so you'd had these kind of post-development critiques and these post-colonial critiques and these you know indigenous voices and and lots of theoretical engagement and so yeah one of the things I suppose um that uh some colleagues and I wrote a paper um a number of years ago now. Well, it would have been in about 2018 and responding to a special issue. And this is kind of where our Indigenous work um, stemmed from. Um, so we're doing lots of kind of case study stuff and thinking about, you know, livelihoods and thinking about, you know, um, gender equality and those sorts of things. A lot of stuff around sport labour migration with, you know, professional players in the Pacific and semi-professional players who are sending remittances home and then thinking about what's happening to those funds at the at the grassroots level in terms of, you know, business opportunities for women and, and that sort of stuff. And then, but we'd written this, um, there was a call for, call for papers around um, the theory practice divide and um and some colleagues we thought that we would look to submit a paper to this special issue and um we we were basically saying you know for indigenous people there is no theory practice divide that you know um theory is practice because worldviews inform the way in which you go about your business and obviously practice informs worldviews and those sorts of things and I don't think they were necessarily kind of saying it's as simpler, it's as simple as that in terms of, you know, his theory and his practice, that there is this clear relationship. But the the paper that we kind of wrote about 
really kind of spoke to a lot of that and we um identified a number of principles that we believed you know were for, were important in terms of um doing indigenous work and and so while you know indigenous communities are all incredibly diverse and it's really important to also understand the nuances there are some similarities um in relation to the way in which we view the human and non-human world the way that we generally have some sort of connection to 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 land to whenua or to place which is which is really important um for indigenous people and settler environments you know we've all been colonized and there's you know all all indigenous people have this kind of um intergenerational trauma that they've had to you know work within and you know when we look at settler settler countries you know most indigenous populations sit within the lower echelons of society whether it be education health crime those sorts of things and um, so there's a lot of commonalities and there's also some commonalities in terms of how we view the world and what we see to be important and and you know so anyway part of you know we'd kind of written this paper and we had these principles and we went to submit the paper to this to this journal and we found that we weren't able to choose the keywords that we wanted to choose um and so we weren't able to choose indigenous um i think at the time post-colonial wasn't available as a word um those sorts of things and so we did a little bit of a scan of the journal and then we also looked at some other sport management sports sociology sport for social change kind of journals and we found that there was a real gap in relation to um indigenous indigenous work and so you know often what we'd seen is that there would be you know a few articles few scholars that had been writing with indigenous you know indigenous communities and doing doing a good job with that but what we found is that you know despite the fact that there was 20 years of you know dedicated theorizing research and practice publications engaging with this indigenous worldview um you know outside people like Downey and that um was quite limited and so there was a real underrepresentation of you know a sport for development indigenous informed scholarship theoretically empirically and um and you know and we felt that this was really concerning because when we think about who are the target audience for sport for development projects it's often indigenous populations. So if we think about Canada, Australia, the US, um, New Zealand, you know, when we're talking about youth, when we're talking about education, when we're talking about, you know, wanting to improve things, who, who are the target audiences for? And, you know, our perception was that, um, you know, if projects and programs are not designed um, from an Indigenous perspective, yet they're targeting Indigenous people, there's a high chance that, you know, the measures of success and um, are not necessarily going to reflect or align necessarily that well 
Um, and so that that was kind of us saying, okay, there's a real opportunity here um, for us to do some work in this space. And that's kind of where we've headed in the last couple of years. Quick break here with a special message from your host. This episode is being released in celebration of the United Nations recognized International Day of Sport for Development and Peace, which takes place annually on April 6th. Each year, champions of the sport for development sector use this day to raise awareness of the incredible work that individuals and organizations are leading across the globe to leverage the potential power of sport and play to drive tangible impact and positive social change. I hope that listeners, whether an enthusiast, a skeptic, or a novice in this space, that you find the conversations I facilitate on the Inspira podcast to be informative and inspirational. If you enjoy this podcast, you would be a rock star if you went ahead and gave it a five-star review with a complimentary written sentence or two on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast platform. Enjoy listening and happy April 6th, everybody. And that's where you and I met because you are currently working on producing a special issue for the Journal of Sport for Development focused on indigenous voices in sport for development. So even though it breaks my heart that you talk about that story where you couldn't choose the key word that of course you needed to choose, it has provided this extra boost for you and your colleagues to really dig in and showcase this topic as much as you can. (laughs) Yeah. And then the really interesting thing was that um, um, it has provided, so, you know, out of something that wasn't great, there's been this, you know, wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And we did a bit of reaching out to different journals um, and spoke a little bit to editorial teams and, um, Initially, there was a bit of interest in the idea of a special issue, but generally what would happen when people got back to us, they'd more or less be saying that we don't actually think that um, people would be that interested. That's oh my gosh. Politely. Yeah, that's it politely. We, we don't think that people would be that interested and we're not really that sure that the quality of work that would come in would be that Ooh. good. Yeah, so that was pretty... Um, that was pretty cutting for us. And so, and, um, and of course people kind of did it politely and, and, you know, and it wasn't just one or two people's decisions, you know, it was decisions being made by editorial boards. Um, So, you know, in a nutshell, people are not that interested in the quality of the work wouldn't be that great from indigenous. So the really amazing thing was um, the journal of sport forward development. And I just absolutely want to give a bit of a plug there. Um, Just look, stellar journal for many, many reasons, because it's open access. um, And so, you know, it very much works off the, the free labor of a number of really passionate people who 
set this up to begin with to provide opportunities to um, practitioners and, um, you know, early career scholars and things like that. But, you know, the open access nature of it also means that people in the global south can actually look at these resources because, you know, unless things are open access, scholars in the global south, practitioners in the global south, if you're not connected to a university, you don't actually get to see any of this information. And um, and I suppose that's why those sport for development websites, those sorts of things have been really important because they've actually enabled um, other people to have a voice, whether it's global south, whether it's indigenous people, whether it's practitioners or, or whatever. And, um, you know, and that really speaks to that idea of like whose knowledge counts, whose knowledge gets promoted constantly and gets disseminated and who gets to read that knowledge. And so, you know, um, the Journal of Sport for Development were incredibly supportive in terms of um, asking us to um, do a bit of a scoping exercise um, to, you know, see who would be keen to be involved. Um, we were really fortunate to have um, professors Graham and Linda Smith. So, you know, Linda Smith um, is very kind of seminal and famous in the um, Indigenous um, methodology space. So anyone who's doing doing work around um, methodology would have heard of, you know, decolonizing methodologies um, written by Linda, Linda Smith, um, I think first published back in 1999, um, and prolific Indigenous um, scholar from, from Aotearoa. And so, yeah, the Sport for Development Journal really, um, really, really supportive in understanding and seeing our vision and, and actually believing in us and believing that this was an important um, piece of work and believing that actually it could it could be done. Yeah, we look forward to this becoming publicly available, which should happen in the next couple of months. But yeah, I'm really, I suppose, really thankful that the Journal of Sport for Development um, understood and believed in what we were saying. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's certainly a shame that other journals didn't jump at that opportunity, <laughs> but I'm glad that you found a nice home for this idea and audience members can keep an eye out for the website, jsfd.org, for new publications coming there in the next month. So um, I'll look forward to that. And um, Rochelle, before I ask you a little bit more about how we can indigenize and how we can decolonize the sector. I did just want to repeat a few things that you said a few moments ago that I'm still really grappling with in a, in a good way, in an exciting way. And one is that you mentioned how the theory and practice divide is not necessarily the same for indigenous populations than for non-indigenous populations. Like that's something that I, I haven't heard before that I'm going to keep thinking about because I think that's a very important observation and insight. And the second that you shared is how oftentimes 
NGOs or sport for development organizations may have a target audience that includes indigenous populations, mm. but if those individuals or populations are not involved in designing or implementing the program, it just doesn't make sense. But that's that could yeah. be happening, which is a shame. And then the third and, and final observation just from the last few moments is what you commented about whose knowledge counts. Because I remember from our earlier conversation, you taught me about that as well in thinking about or acknowledging how researchers may have the expectation or the pressure to produce or to really focus on productivity and how sometimes that can detract from the quality of voice or the quality of insight if you're kind of pushing for amount and just how that relates to whose knowledge counts and who has the privilege to speak out their knowledge or speak out their voice in this research setting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, so part of that is, I suppose, about, you know, um, non-Indigenous researchers um, often not believing in terms of what they, what counts as knowledge or how that, how people came to know and um and so you know part of that is actually about suspending um I suppose for non-indigenous kind of researchers suspending that disbelief and in, in what might be known and who knows and how they know and so you know the way in which kind of knowledge is kind of confirmed or reproduced might be explicitly linked to um, geography or weather or visions or dreams or those sorts of things and that stuff is really important and I think what tends to happen is that Indigenous people were placed in a position that they've got to justify or explain something to non-Indigenous people and they are the ones that then get to decide whether that counts or not um, rather than just kind of accepting um, that that this might be true and valid and um, and so we have really big debates here in New Zealand around this idea of so we, we talk about Māori knowledge as so mataranga Māori and there are clear debates that come out from scientists saying that mataranga Māori isn't science. And, you know, if I think about the idea that um, Indigenous people have always navigated, have always um, planted, have always been able to construct and engineer and weave and, so, you know, and so, you know, the idea that you were able to um, think about something and test it and figure out that it worked is scientific. You know, the fact that you're using astronomy and things like that to navigate your way around the world is scientific. Um, and so, you know, we have lots of those kind of debates where Indigenous people are the ones that are having to explain what it is that they know and it's only seen to be valid once non-Indigenous people say that it's valid. 
it's almost like we need people non-Indigenous to be a little more, I suppose, open-minded and open-hearted about, you know, what the possibilities might be. And there are different ways in which people talk about things, you know, in Australia, when there might be some sort of, for some, some Indigenous populations, when they talk about intuition or they talk about, you know, a coincidence or they talk about, you know, they'll, they'll talk about a something, a something has happened. And, and, you know, and that stuff is really, really important. And it might be the appearance of an animal that someone hasn't seen for a couple of years, or it might be the fact that a rainbow appears as you leave a space, which feels like a really good omen or something. And I think we just have to be more open-minded and open-hearted to to actually sometimes accept that we don't necessarily understand everything, but that doesn't make it any less true for people. In terms of how we can all indigenize and decolonize sport for development, I know those are very two very big topics. I recognize you just mentioned encouraging Mm. non-Indigenous like myself to be more open-minded, to be more open-hearted to those views, opinions, perspectives, beliefs, and accounts from Indigenous populations. Are there other ways how we can really support Indigenizing and decolonizing the sector from your insights? Yeah, so I think we have to, um, you know, obviously there are times when um, how sport is conceived of is quite different. So we also need to, you know, think beyond some of the more kind of, um, you know, limited sport that people might use. I think that, you know, the the idea even of sport development. So, you know, we know in the sport for development space, we have, you know, we have the sport development then we have the plus sport and the sport plus sort of thing and and I think there's more of a blurring for indigenous people so just by default when you're developing a sport so if I take the case of rugby in Fiji for women or rugby in New Zealand just by default you're also um, thinking through the way in which women are developing themselves if that makes sense so I think you know the 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 disconnect or the the it's blurred I feel like it's much more blurred so by default when I'm developing as an athlete as a as an indigenous person I'm I'm not necessarily doing that based on my own individual goals or individual um, aspirations that it is clearly about you know, my duty to the people that are to come. I have these kind of obligations and duties to my broader community and my family and those sorts of things. So I think there are different ways in which we can conceive of sport. Um, I think there are different ways that um, traditional sports or indigenous sports can be um, included and some of those things. I think that there's um, a really clear history where Indigenous people have been doing sport for development and pace before it was ever invented. 
you know, rather than going to war, rather than doing X, Y, Z, people often engage in some sort of athletic type something that showed skill or or enabled them to actually make decisions around um, land or make decisions around property or make decisions around whether they should fight or not by engaging in some sort of athletic skilled venture to keep peace. Mm. And so, you know, like That's we so talk cool. about, yeah, <laughs> we, we talk about the idea, you know, we actually have a number of games in New Zealand where instead of going to war, that people played, played this game and that was all about keeping, keeping peace. Thinking about the one which we conceive of sport, I think we do absolutely need to make sure that Indigenous people have a voice at the table and are involved in things right from the onset in terms of design and implementation in terms of what's important and even those measures, you know, because it's often funders or, you know, the bilaterals or whoever who are putting these projects into place it's often their measures that become really important in terms of success. So one example might be, you know, they might have statistics in terms of, you know, how many people came to the program, how many boys and girls came to the program, how many people completed the program or how many goals were scored by, you know, girls, how many times did they get to play or, you know, did it change the way that, parents let their daughters move around or you know did it keep girls in schools or those sorts of things but a better um, measure of success might be that actually the indigenous young people who are involved in this program actually feel a level of pride um, as to being indigenous they that they actually feel really confident um, that they can actually stand up and talk in their language and introduce themselves so it might may not be that you know they got to win the game it might actually be that a better measure of success is that they no longer actually felt ashamed about being indigenous um Mm. or they suddenly um were able to talk about their genealogy and make links to particular mountains or rivers or or animals or those sorts of things and and use their language, you know, because most Indigenous people have been colonised and it means that many are disconnected from their language. Many of um, ancestors have had the experiences of residential schools or stolen generations or adoption, those sorts of things. So they actually don't know what their tribal links are. And and they've had generations prior to them who have felt ashamed about identifying as being Indigenous. You know, it might only be in the last, you know, 50 years that people are have been allowed to um, name their tribe or identify on a census who they connect with. So there's kind of a lot of trauma that we have to kind of think through. So... You know, a measure of success um, in terms of project might be something quite different as terms of what the funders might think, yeah. 
Yeah, and in kind of other ways, I think, you know, it is really important um, to to give space to people and, and to kind of nurture people and support them. And, you know, one of the things we talk a little bit about, Erica, is that as a Indigenous scholar or as an Indigenous student, you, you may not be the strongest writer because maybe English is your second language. Maybe English is your third language if you're in Canada where you're having to speak French, English, and then it's, but you actually grew up on a reservation and you were able to, you know, speak in your own language. So in New Zealand, it's not uncommon for people to have gone all the way through school. We have Kohangareo uh, and Kurakaupapa. So people have gone all the way through school speaking te reo. So, you know, English is their second second language. And so the idea that actually in terms of, say, scholarship, they may not be the strongest of writers, but how do we support people in a way that is kind of manner-enhancing or protects their, where I would talk about wide or protects their spirit, that enables them to learn some of those strategies and be part of the process. So, you know, it's not just about when you're working in a team that you might be the person that put the words on the paper, but the very idea you never had until you had those conversations with with those Indigenous members. So they may not have written the words, but it's actually their intellectual property. Mm, and yeah. knowledge, in my view, knowledge development or or knowledge production just isn't about the words on the paper. And so, you know, don't make them um, fifth author. Don't um, put them in the acknowledgements. Be generous about the different ways in which people might have contributed to your to your work and, and value kind of who, who they are and what those contributions might look like. Um, so, yeah, I think there's lots of, lots of things that we can kind of, do and I think you know having some of our some of our funders and some of our um, you know journals providing opportunities. This is where special issues I think are really important, but providing opportunities for other worldviews and other opportunities, um, you know, for people to. Um, have a chance and so that might be about buddying an early career researcher up with someone who's more more developed and more skilled and and supporting them along the way to have those opportunities and so I think we we can certainly make some huge changes in terms of our scholarship the way in which we um, do our research and um, the way in which we make our research teams and who we include them and how they are included and um and how we kind of theorize that space as well so I think there's quite a lot that we can do I think it's a pretty exciting time but I've definitely seen I, I, I would say in the last three years there has been a real kind of growth of more um sport for development academics talking about some of these issues and, um, and I think working in research teams of settler and indigenous people can be a really really good way to support each other and learn 
um, and support non-Indigenous scholars to become accomplices, you know, so not just be tokenistic in what they do or not just, you know, talk about being an ally, actually engage fully in this notion of allyship and, and be an accomplice to that kind of Indigenous agenda. So many wonderful ideas you have for how we can decolonize and indigenize the sector. So for anyone listening, please rewind it a few minutes and just absorb everything that Rochelle is teaching us. So thank you. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you wanted to share that we haven't talked about yet regarding your career experiences or insights? I think it's a really exciting time and I, you know, I would suggest for like any early career researchers and students who, who are Indigenous, you know, um, you can, you got this, like you can absolutely do this and, um, and it does require you to be brave and if you can find your people, um, if you can find your um your non-Indigenous people that you really enjoy working with who get what you're saying. So, you know, I've got some great colleagues, you know, Lindsay Hayhurst, um, Audrey Giles, who are just doing incredible work um, in this space, Stephen Wren, you know, people that we've been really privileged to be able to work with who actually really function as accomplices in this space and truly come from an authentic place you know um holly thorpe in new zealand coming from an authentic place in terms of their indigenous co-power and and really generous with their with their you know with their skills and open-hearted and open-minded to be able to kind of learn and and ask questions and um and then i think you know for um non-indigenous you know, scholars, you know, just kind of remember that we actually do come from a place of privilege. You know, I myself understand that I'm privileged in terms of the opportunities that I've had, the education that I've been able to access and the position that I now find myself. And I think it's really important for us to not forget that we have been privileged. I'm also privileged in the New Zealand sense in that I look Pākehā more than I do Māori, there's an element of, you know, non-judgmental behaviours towards me immediately based on the way that I I look. It also means that I'm likely to hear things that my colleagues may not hear as well because people make assumptions. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of like I think this is a really dynamic space um, I think it's really exciting to have different groups working together but I think it's also really important to um, not forget your privilege and you know and let other people sometimes have an opportunity that's in my view is what being being a good accomplice looks like looks like and call people out you know um, call people in and call people out when they're doing stuff that's actually you know, not mana enhancing. Mm-hmm. 
Now that we know more about our guest's career journey, the rest of our conversation will allow us to have some fun and get to know our guest on a personal level through some rapid fire questions. We'll then start to wrap up with pointed questions focused on advice and how our listeners can transform interest into action. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. Rochelle, what gives you energy? Ah, oh, look, actually, <laughs> my colleagues give me energy. Like, yeah. I feel really energized when um, I'm working much more in a team environment. That really, mm-hmm. really gives me energy. And, um, you know, talking through our research actually gives me gives me energy and it, and it really excites me. And actually, young people coming through, um give me energy when I think about you know what what are the possibilities um yeah mm-hmm. what is your favorite activity to do with your kids um hmm I think just uh beach like yeah. we're really beach people mm-hmm. and we have a jet ski and so Ooh. um <laughs> we um we would spend lots of time at the beach with big picnics and with the kids and a lot of their friends. And um, yeah, that's a really, really enjoyable space mm. for us, the beach. Yeah. Well, folks can keep an eye out for the research articles and publications related to Indigenous voices in sport for development. Are there any resources that exist right now that you would encourage any audience members to take a look at, especially if they're interested in that intersection of Indigenous voices and sport for dev? Yeah, well, I've got a couple of, um, you know, good articles that have come out recently, the one that I talked about um, that was, um, I'll just go back and get the exact name for that, but it's called Sport for Social Change with Aotearoa New Zealand Youth Navigating the Theory Practice Nexus Through Indigenous Principles, and that was published in the Journal of Sport Management, and so that can actually be a really nice start point, and I think that there's some really nice references there. We've got a website as well, which is just called um, Indigenous um sport for development um we're just in the process of developing that website um so it's you know it's a work in progress absolutely look out for the special issue and i think you know um you know there's lots of really nice examples on youtube of you know indigenous communities doing great work with um with sport and so if you can work out who some of those scholars are and that space and really look at how they're writing you know with as I mentioned Audrey Giles writing in that space Dan Henhawk people like that um and yeah just kind of find out who who your people are in sports sociology or sports management or sport um you know the discipline of sport um and um and just look at what they're saying um, and I think, you know, you can learn quite a lot, lot from just being, being engaged with, with that scholarship really as an academic. Mm. How can our audience support you or your work moving forward? Hmm. Um, well, I think I suppose it's about, you know, um, when you're 
going along to a conference and there's um, a paper that's been given by, say, you know, a student and, you know, sometimes we have a tendency to all rush to what looks like the biggest speakers or the more popular speakers or the more interesting things that might be happening. I think that sometimes going along to hear some of those uh, smaller presentations, I think, can be really, really useful. I think that can be a nice way. Um, you know, if you, you've got a student who might potentially be wanting to do work in this space, you know, reach out and find out who you can tap into if you're not Indigenous to get support so that you can enable that work to happen. Support your students or whatever to um, write their scholarships uh, applications so they've got a better opportunity to actually do this work. You know, how can you grow your own knowledge so that you might be learning and asking some of those some of those questions. I think that can be a really good way to support the growth of this scholarship. Maybe like, I don't know, be adventurous. Move away from what you know <laughs> and take some risks and try reading, reading something, something different. Well, my final question that I love to ask all of my amazing guests is who or what inspires you? And I do invite folks to answer in any language that they wish. And Rochelle, I invite you to address that language component in any way that you're comfortable with today. Yeah, thanks for that, Erica. So one of the things that I suppose we see around um, the globe is that for many Indigenous populations that actually we've all been colonized and so what that has meant is that we've been colonized marginalized and assimilated whether it's been through residential schools or stolen generations or those sorts of things and as a result many of us are disconnected from our from our language and so if I think about my own family background you know a grandfather who was fluent in Tereo who was um, you know punished at school for speaking Tereo. So it was actually forbidden speaking your language. And so what you end up with is parents who are disconnected from the Tereo. In terms of who inspires me, look, actually Indigenous communities inspire me and young people inspire me. And they inspire me when I think about Indigenous populations around the globe, no matter what they have done to them, they have survived. And, and they continue to fight, when, you know, regardless of all the things that they have had done to them over the last 200 years. So they just have this incredible resilience to continue, whether it's keeping their stories alive, keeping their language alive, keeping their traditions alive, sharing their knowledge, those sorts of things. And um, so I'm, you know, that's actually what really, really inspires me. And also the young people coming through that have a pride in, in terms of who they are as being Indigenous. So I think about, you know, our rangatahi in, in New Zealand, which is our young people. Um, and then there's lots of kind of elders that really inspire me. You know, I think about Dame um, Fina Cooper, who at about, I don't know, 80 years old, walked the length of the North Island as, as a peaceful protester in terms of um, 
the way in which Māori were being disconnected from their land, talking about, you know, no more land to be taken from Māori. So there's some key people like that for, for me that really kind of inspire me. Yeah, but the idea that actually no matter what has happened to Indigenous communities, they're still there. That's incredible. You didn't mind, I might finish with what's called a karakia. And so I will say it in Tereo and then I'll translate it into English. But generally what we do in New Zealand is that we have karakia to, to start and kind of end a gathering. And part of that is that it's about bringing people into the space and making sure people are present and you've kind of left, you know, all the other clutter and things that are in your so. The English word for it might be mindfulness, bringing you into the <laughs> environment. And um, anyway, so I'll just read out this short karakia and just to wind us up. So it's a kia toti mana kitanga, kia ranga kiti tina, kitina or tato, kia pikiti ora, kia pikiti maramatanga, kia hokim pai atua, kia hoki pai mai, tutura fakamau au, kitina tina hoe. And that basically is me saying, settle um, the care and protection upon each of us. May the health and understanding grow. Return well to others and ourselves. Hold fast to your authenticity. Be firm. Join together. Gather together. Bind as one and kind of ending things up and um, letting us kind of go forward. We've done our mahi and we can kind of move out into the world. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Inspira podcast with Erica Mueller-Chen. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and found it useful. Be sure to check out the show notes for links and resources. Specifically, my link tree is there with tons of awesome information. Feel inspired to take action today? I've got three action steps you can take right now because you know your girl likes calls to action and the number three. So here goes. Number one. Sign up for my mailing list by adding your email address. Number two, check out my global resource hub and send it to someone in the sector who may be interested. Number three, buy me a coffee. Or if you know me, this will actually be a hot cocoa. Your support will help make sure this passion project prospers. All of these links are available by visiting my link tree. Until next time, stay inspired.